Welcome to Launched. I'm Stephen Hackett, and today I'm excited to bring you the developer behind Dark Noise, Charlie Chapman. Hey, Charlie. Welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> this this is a very surreal experience, uh, but uh, thanks for having me. I guess is yeah. what I'm supposed to say here. Yeah, yeah, you're you're, you're welcome. Uh, obviously, people who listen to this show know who you are, but you do this great thing where you ask your guests the same three opening questions. So now I get to ask them of you a way to get to know you a little bit better. So where are you from? Do you have any formal education related to what you do? And what was your career leading up to Dark Noise? All right. So, where I'm from, uh, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, right smack dab in the middle of the USA. Similar, not too far from you uh, in Memphis. Uh, yeah. Both both central time zone, which I've I've come to to think is, is one of the best time zones, personally. Uh, yeah. You don't need to be an extreme on one end of the country or the other. You want to be in that sweet middle spot. Yeah. If you're, if you're dealing mostly with, you know, uh, US based time zone stuff, central is very convenient. Yeah. Uh, it's nobody ever says your time zone. Like whenever they're talking about like, you know, the football games on at whatever time, they never say central, which is annoying, but they're only ever off by at most two hours. So it's not right. as confusing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I plan everything in Eastern time because I have a lot of Europeans in my work life and they all know what time it is in New York. And uh, yeah, yeah. Being one off from that is easier for me than for them. So everything I plan, like I have to send an email to somebody like, hey, let's do 10 a.m. Eastern in my mind. I'm just thinking 9 a.m. for me. Oh, interesting. Do you do you have uh, like Eastern time like on your watch or something? No, I just uh, just sort of how I think at this point. I've done it so long. Makes sense. All right. See, I'm already turning. <laughs> I just almost started like interviewing you. Uh, I know. You I need to, to not do that. All right. So <laughs> the second question, man, whose idea was it to ask three questions right away? I, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You're going to dose of your own medicine, buddy. What a crazy, what crazy person would do that. Um, okay. So formal education related to, do, uh, to what I do. So I do have a computer, computer information science degree, uh, but essentially a computer science degree. And I came out of that and went right into the workforce, uh, which here in St. Louis, Missouri, basically means for the most part, you're either going to go Java or you're going to go Microsoft Stack. And not mm -hmm. so much a choice, just which job I happened to get. I ended up kind of in the Microsoft Stack doing like web development, enterprise applications, web services, all that very fun stuff. That's uh, especially because it was insurance claims processing at the beginning uh it was very okay. exciting to tell my friends uh the things that i did at work all day uh, <laughs> see now you've strayed into the third question <laughs> oh that's well that's what actually we're gonna get this whole thing's gonna be matter we might as well lean into it uh that's actually sort of intentional it's like that's usually what happens is uh somebody will sometimes they'll have a long story about their education or whatever and sometimes mm -hmm. sometimes they don't want to talk about it at all and like by asking all three questions right away it kind of gives people the ability to focus on the thing they want to focus on sure and so it sort of flows between all three so sometimes people don't even answer them as proper questions which was kind of intentional uh i think it works mostly although sometimes you have situations like this where we sit there and talk about it um but <laughs> yeah 
So anyway, so where was I? So I I was doing Microsoft development. Yeah. So Microsoft Stack doing mostly like web development. Uh, lots of very exciting claims, insurance claims processing. And then I got the opportunity to go over to this company that was doing uh, Windows Phone and Windows 8 development. Oh, wow. Um, which was .NET. It was the language that I was familiar with, but it was kind of getting to like play in the what was the very exciting software development that I wasn't getting to kind of take part in, which was like touch-based interfaces. I've always loved animation and, you know, I my big hobby throughout my whole life really has been like creating video content of some kind. Um, you know, when I was in school, uh, it was like doing opening little bumpers for churches or uh, eventually I started doing like motion graphics projects for like ad agencies around town. Um, it was always something I just absolutely loved doing. I, I am just as if not more comfortable in After Effects than I am, you know, in Xcode. It's just kind of the thing that I really like love doing. Um, but what I found when I got to do this Windows phone development was you kind of got to play in that space and do the software development because animations are a part of making a touch base interface work. I like, I remember one of my favorite projects was working for uh, a phone book company that uh, part of their branding was this like sort of wheel thing that like represented different categories that the phone book, you know, had. And so okay. I got to build, you know, a wheel that you could flick and, that was like a selection element. You know what I mean? Oh, and so when you clever. flicked it, you know, I could like, when you took your finger off, I could calculate the velocity that you were moving at whenever you lifted your finger. And then I could like project where the thing would land and then shift it a little bit. So it always landed perfectly on one of the real categories and then animate that so that, you know, it felt like you were flipping a wheel, but it always ended up landing in the right spot. And like, very cool. You know, you're you're opening up Wikipedia and like looking up formulas, which is not something I know. That's what like non engineers often think engineers are doing. <laughs> or I shouldn't say engineers, but software right. <laughs> developers are doing all day. But rarely are we really getting into the weeds on you know formulas and stuff. And when you do, mm -hmm. it's very fun. And for me personally, when you do and it's related to something visual that you can sit there and tweak the numbers to make it quote feel right. That's where it's very, very fun and exciting. And so I adored that. Absolutely loved doing it. I got to go to Microsoft build, which was at the Moscone center. So like, and then I made like a little indie app on my own. So I felt like I was sort of pretending to be all of these indie iOS developers that I've been following on Twitter for a long time. <laughs> um, but sort of in this weird, like, you know, under what would the right word be? Weird, like parallel universe thing. Yeah, uh, with the Microsoft Store. It's like the episode of Seinfeld with like Bizarro Jerry. Yes, right. It's like there's this this mirror universe out there somehow that's exactly like ours, but exactly not like ours at the same time. Yeah, it was super strange. It was also weird because let's see, I think the year I went to build was 2014. So like it was during this maybe two year period where Microsoft was like really genuinely focusing on tablets with Windows 8 and phones with Windows Phone. And that was a thing that they were really focused on. But at the same time, this was when Satya Nadella was like transforming Microsoft into not the Windows only company. Right. And so Azure and all these services were a big deal. So I kind of had a front row seat to watching that happen, even though I wasn't 
necessarily taking part in it. And that looking back on it, that's almost the cooler thing to kind of have been in the room when that stuff was happening. Um, but as I've alluded to, uh, windows phone wasn't, wasn't long for this world. No, sadly not. Yeah. I, I genuinely love the platform. I think I would recommend it to a lot of people, uh, who for whatever reason didn't want to be in the Apple platform, but were, didn't want like the sort of hacky, uh, you can make it do whatever you want, but it's a little kludgy world of Android, which at the time was what that was my platform of choice uh, at that point. Okay. Because um, I liked flashing custom ROMs on my phone and doing all yeah. the, you know, crazy stuff there. Yeah. I carried a Motorola Droid for a long time and I remember like, oh, you can change what the flashing LED does. So I had it like green as a text message and blue as an email and red as a work email. Like that tinkering is something I still miss sometimes. To this day, that is something I really miss from most Android phones is like that simple indicator light. Mm -hmm. For me, the one where it really comes into play is when I plug my phone in at night. Uh, Well, let me rephrase that. When I set my phone on a tree charger at night because every once in a while I wake up and it wasn't placed right and it's not charging. Right. So it gives me this like anxiety every time. And all I need is a tiny, not very bright green LED. And it could be a single OLED pixel that my always on display just shows. I just need something to indicate, yes, this thing is charging. Yeah. And it drives me crazy that, you know, Apple doesn't give us that when we, I had that for forever in Android world. Um, but anyway, I'm digressing. Okay. Yeah. So you, you go to school, you get a computer science degree. And uh, so far you've worked in, on a phone book app and you've worked in insurance claims and some time at Microsoft. Um, what got you into the Apple world? Like, at what point did you make that transition over? So, you know, the Windows phone thing didn't last super long. And to be clear, I wasn't working on like a single app. It was It was a consulting company that work kind of with Microsoft to help people port their apps. So I built a lot of different apps in, in windows phone. Um, but that didn't last super long. And so, you know, I kind of fell back into the web world more or less, um, switched over to a different company and was building a lot of backend services for this kind of big client that we had. And one of the teams there was building a pretty cool, but I can't talk about it internal, uh, iPad, and iPhone application. And so my team was like servicing them. We were like the backend services for this. And uh, I was in a meeting and they talked about how they were like shuffling some things around and they were going to bring on a junior iOS dev onto their team uh, because they didn't have like a whole lot in the pipeline and they could help, you know, train somebody up. And we came, we came out of that meeting and I asked uh, our like manager person, I was like, how junior are you willing to take? on this project (laughs) and they're like why are you interested and i was like i mean yeah like i've never done ios development but i love i know i knew from my experience with windows phone that i loved uh touch base interfaces and so they were like yeah and like within a couple minutes they were like all right in a couple weeks you're gonna be starting on this team and i was like whoa so i went home and downloaded xcode and (laughs) watched a bunch of youtube tutorials uh arguing over whether storyboards was better than you know at the time everything was already swift but you know code-based uh uis and that i mean i came in completely green into the ios world and so you know i immediately started trying to learn everything right read through apple's like swift books and stuff like that but then very very quickly i was like well 
I knew that I liked the indie thing a little bit from listening to people for forever and also from doing a little bit with Windows Phone. Um, and I needed to learn really fast. And so I was like, all right, I'm a nerd who has uh, Apple Note that is app ideas and it's just a giant list. Why I kept this at the time, I don't know because I wasn't an app developer, but I had this list sitting there. I was like, I should start a side project so that I can, in my spare time, get up to speed so I'm actually helpful to this team okay. faster. And also, it'll be fun. I like wearing all these different hats and, you know, trying to do the indie thing. In my head, I wasn't even sure if I would really release it, but I set a goal for myself to get something in the App Store. And it would be really cool if it paid for the $100 developer account. Mm-hmm. Um, but my Windows indie apps that I had at the time, those never even reached the $100 mark. So they didn't even like pay for themselves. Right. Um, I don't even know if I got a payment. I think you had to like reach $100 before you even get paid in that in that world. And so I wasn't thinking of it like this is going to be, you know, a business. I was thinking of it like I need to be useful to this team as soon as I can. And so I'm going to start building something. And the thing that I started building when I was going through my list of ideas, I was looking for, all right, what's something that doesn't need a backend? Because I know how to do that. I don't need to learn that. I need to focus purely on iOS and is simple enough that I can just focus on learning all these concepts and get something built in a reasonable amount of time. And the thing I landed on was a white noise app. And the reason that was in my notes is because when we switched from Android to iOS, however many years before that, we knew we needed one because we, my wife listens to the same sound, you know, every night. Sure. And so we went through the app store and every app that we found was, uh, It felt like it came out when the iPhone was originally announced. And while it had been updated since then, it was just new features, but the design was kind of the same. They were, you know, kind of filled with ads. They just weren't the type of nice feeling apps like everything else whenever I came into the iOS world felt like. There was like all the, there was always like in every category, it feels like there's this like premium indie app that maybe it's a little more expensive and maybe it doesn't have like, every single possible feature and a social network built on top, but it's just nice to use. Sure. And that I didn't see that for, for white noise. And I was like, all right, that's an opportunity. I can really sit down and focus on making something simple. That is, uh, delightful. Um, and so that's, that's how dark noise started. Yeah. I remember whatever app I was using before dark noise, dark noise showed up was like, it was just bad. Like the UI was, really like downright confusing and ugly and it felt like it was stuck in like iOS five times in some ways like you yeah. go to a panel like oh the old UI is like hanging out back here and it it really seemed like it was something that was ripe for disruption and I find it interesting that you sort of approached it that way but it was first out of like a, a personal need and I, I really believe the best indie apps are those written by developers who write it for themselves, right? Like Marco talks about this with Overcast, right? Like there's things in Overcast that are there because that's how he wants to use a podcast yeah. player. And thankfully that resonates with enough people. He can have a business. So you go in, you you want to have a tool for this. You find there's not one. You decide to build it yourself. What were some of those initial challenges? I mean, you're pretty new to the platform, even though you have a lot of development experience. What was that learning curve like? Um, I mean, so... Xcode, this is getting a little technical, but I think it's an interesting anecdote, even if you're not technical. I've I've bounced around a lot of different programming languages, a lot of different uh, IDEs, which is like the 
app that you the Xcode is an IDE. It's the app you used, you know, to write to write uh, software. Mm-hmm. I've used a lot of different platforms, a lot of different languages, and uh, Swift and Objective C because I was learning that. I didn't do any object- Objective C with Dark Noise, but the app I was doing had some. Um, but Swift and Objective C and Xcode in particular, the way I've described it to people is it feels like you know you went back in time to like the early 2000s and there was like a fork from the rest of the world and these apple development platforms grew off of that fork while the rest of the world grew off of a different fork Hmm. and every once in a while there was some cross-pollination between the two but they were like far enough apart that they almost felt like a different species there was like decisions that were just so different and odd um, coming from everywhere else, things you'd expect to be there that weren't there. But then I'm working with a bunch of people and I've talked about this in other places, but the company I was at, we did uh paired programming and like, like extreme paired programming where we, we had a single computer and two people working on that computer. And there was two keyboards connected to it, two mice, two monitors that were just mirroring the same display. Okay. Uh, and you'd like trade off one person would write tests and then the other one would, update the app to make those tests pass. It was, it was very extreme. But what that meant for me is coming in cold, not knowing the language or any of the IDs or anything. I like watched people code in this platform. And so I got to learn all the little nuances and the little things that they do that uh, other platforms have never done before. Um, and so it, that was one of the weird things. It, it, it felt different than other transitions between languages that I've made. And that took a little bit uh, to get used to. But the the thing that was maybe took a little bit to get used to, but was incredibly liberating was especially coming from the web world, you were allowed to get like in the weeds, like mm-hmm. you could spend time tweaking, you know, at a pixel level or frame based animation level, uh, you could make animations work really well. And on the web, it's kind of like if you were getting down to that level, you were probably going to run into performance problems and you always wanted to like ease back out and make something a little more uh a little more simple or basic but in the ios world it was like encouraged to sit there and make a timing animation work you know perfectly right or anything like that um and that was very very cool uh and very exciting and it, it was kind of funny when i started i started a, this it was january 2019 and coming from the web world and and the microsoft world all of those languages were declarative and UI kit and everything Apple at the time was, it was all imperative. So, you, you know, right. You specifically said exactly where you wanted things to be at a pixel level or whatever. Right. That, that was one of the big changes with Swift UI, right? And Swift UI didn't exist yet. Yeah. Oh, you were right before it, right? Cause it was, it was introduced at WBDC that year. So that was part of that feeling of feeling like we went back in time a little bit is like, oh, this is how you used to program things. But all these modern <laughs> UIs are built this way. And so my first couple months, I was like, you know, I had added to my WWDC wish list a declarative UI language because there had been rumors and stuff. And I was like, man, that would be so awesome. But by the time we got to the summer, and especially by the time we got to where we could really use Swift UI, I was I was already like the old curmudgeon that's like, uh, I just want to go back to UI kit where you can be specific about things and Swift UI is, you know, buggy and frustrating to use. It was really funny like how quickly I came to appreciate 
the imperative way of, of programming. Hmm. Um, and I'm de- I definitely think there's, there's a balance between the two. And it's the nice thing about uh, the Swift UI UI kit kind of ecosystem that we have now, while it's confusing and it's especially confusing for podcasters trying to talk about it and explain it at the development right. side, yeah. <laughs> you can kind of go, okay, I'm building a setting screen. I can really, really quickly knock this out in Swift UI. Mm-hmm. And then somebody's like, well, we want to make this specific piece in the setting screen, do this kind of crazy thing. And there's a point where you need to fall back into UI kit, but you can do that. Right. And so having that kind of backing up uh, Swift UI, especially while Swift UI is less mature, has been, I've been really impressed seeing Apple do a, a transition. Um, especially living in the Microsoft world when Microsoft was attempting that transition. Same goes for ARM. I was I was coding ARM-based uh, Windows applications at the time too, and it was it was not as smooth as uh, dealing with the ARM transition <laughs> here. Here, it's like it kind of just blew my mind. I was expecting a lot more pain, and yep. there was just none. Apple's the best big player when it comes to transitions, I think, because they have the whole stack and because they've done a lot of them right. Like yeah. And they, they're okay uh, saying, sorry, you're on old stuff. We don't care about you anymore. Whereas Microsoft is right. not. And that's it's yeah. like a feature, not a bug. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's good that both players exist because you kind of need... Yeah. I don't think Apple could get away with it if they needed to... If somebody needed to support that and Microsoft wasn't there to do that. Right. I mean, look, my, you know, internal tool still needs IE6. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. That was my first job. When, <laughs> when did Dark Noise end up launching? So let's see. So I started working on it in January and then Dark Noise officially launched in the App Store in August. Okay. So n- no Swift UI in that first version then? No, there was no Swift UI at all. It was it was iOS 12. Yeah, I guess you're right right before the launch. So I la- I tried to kind of thread the needle between WWDC and the iPhone announcement because mm-hmm. mostly because I hear you all uh, talk about how there's this lull in that period where there's no yeah. content to talk about. And I'm like, well, maybe it really is. Maybe I can fill that <laughs> void. Yeah. I'm more likely to get a write up if it's during a time when there's not a whole bunch of other stuff happening. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't remember the time, but I remember the launch really clearly because I think one thing you've always done well is let people in the press know what's going on. Right. And I think you, if I remember correctly, you had a a sort of batch of people who had been on the beta and knew about it. I know you definitely did that with the 2.0, which we'll get to. But what was the the business model for that first version? And how was the launch? I mean, you you I think you did throw the needle timing wise really interesting. Did that did that pay off for you? Yeah, I like you know, when I started this, it's not I had no like Twitter following. Nobody knew who I was, especially not in the Apple community. And I I opened up the beta really early. And that was kind of the first batch of following I had for the app was when I opened the beta up before WWDC. And then during WWDC, a lot of people were just engaged on Twitter. Like, you know, like what's going to happen? Well, maybe a week ago. I don't know when this episode is going to come out. For us in a couple weeks here, <laughs> uh, when WWDC happens, like the whole community just kind of comes alive on whatever platform will be on by that week. But at the time it was Twitter. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and a bunch of people, like I was just tweeting about what I was building and 
I would push out updates immediately to the to the test flight beta and kind of more people started sending me feedback and then I'd integrate that feedback and tweet about it and then more people would send me feedback based on that and it sort of snowballed into a decent sized beta which that was big. Um, another thing that was big was I had the idea of I shouldn't say I had the idea. I probably got it from somebody but I don't I couldn't tell you who of like having alternate app icons that were based on like podcasts or other developers that I knew. Mm -hmm. And so like I had one for connected that was, uh, it's just called weird fish and it kind of looks like the amoeba emoji, but it's got the dark noise logo on there. And you know, there's a bunch of other ones that are kind of like references to podcasts. And if they were too close where I felt like I may have been crossing a line, I would email people and be like, Hey, I'm doing this. Uh, are you okay with that? And some people never responded and I just didn't include those. Like I still have those icons sitting here, but for the people that did respond, you know, and said, yeah, I'm okay with you using that. They were like, thanks for asking. And I was kind of on those people's radar, which may have, I wasn't intending that to be cynically like a way to get on, you know, those podcasters radars, but I guess it kind (laughs) of worked worked out that way. (laughs) Um, And also I tweeted about those as I was building them. Mm -hmm. And I think the first really big rush of people I got big relative to what I had before was, I think it was the connected one tweeting about the amoeba uh, and Federico Vitici retweeted it. And it was like, his following seeing some indie app and of course his following cares about indie apps yeah that also is one of them right like oh look at all these references to podcasts i also listen to i got a bunch of people that joined then and then would get feedback and it kind of continued that flywheel of people sending me feedback me integrating it tweeting about it them being like oh my gosh he integrated my feedback and then them tweeting about it it kind of created a flywheel which kept growing and leading into the launch itself yeah I think it was a super smart way to do it. And that's one of the things I think we've lost as the community has moved away from Twitter for the most part. I know people are still there. You know, it's still valuable to a lot of people. But I think the core Apple community isn't there anymore. And I do sort of worry about that, like on the meta level of like, what is going to be the community watering hole right now? It's Mastodon. I don't know if that'll stick or not, but it is sort of a a harder time right now to kind of get that momentum going like you were talking about. Yeah. I worry like if you're already established, it's not, it's not as big of a deal, but in those moments where you're kind of trying to break in those little micro moments of the right person noticing you or, uh, the right group of people noticing you or whatever, like they make a really, really big difference. Um, and maybe over time you'd eventually get there anyway. And it's not like any one moment makes or breaks you, Mm -hmm. but it certainly, it certainly helps a lot. And it's why I appreciate people like Steve Trout and Smith will do these like big kind of retweet storms where he's like, what are you guys working on? And retweets a bunch of people. And like me selfishly, sometimes I'm like, man, that's a lot of retweets. But every once in a while, something comes across my radar that I'm like, ooh, that's neat. And I'll jump on that. And a lot of times it's somebody who had no following before. And because, you know, they threw their idea out there with some a video or whatever, um, it got a lot of people kind of interested early on. And then that's how things kind of snowball. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your actual real question at the beginning of this, which <laughs> I'm doing a great job of actually answering. <laughs> uh, the original business model was paid up front. Okay. And the idea there was this is a side project. I did not want the pressure of 
I somebody's paying me regularly and I need to keep up with this because for all I knew, it would be like every other side project I've ever done, which is you launch the thing. Some people use it. It's really exciting to see, you know, a little ping that somebody in Taiwan bought your app and it's like, oh my gosh, somebody across the world bought my thing. And then that's kind of it. It kind of fizzles out. Um, so that was the idea there. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel like it warranted um, a high price because it, you know, I didn't know what I was doing for starters and I had only, I'd spent less than a year building it. And some of these apps that have been out there have been, they have a million features because they've been on the store for forever. Um, so I released it. The original price was three ninety nine, which felt expensive, uh, to me at the time. Like I was like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if anybody will pay this, but we'll see how it goes. Um, and my kind of goal, like when I, I have it written in some doc somewhere was like, what would be amazing is if I could ever make this a $10, like a nine ninety nine app and people thought that was worth it. Like that felt like the pinnacle of, you know, like Peacock, I think. Well, the last I had checked, they were that was still ten ninety nine, um, and that felt like the pinnacle of kind of the indie, paid up front app thing at the time. Right. Um, but I didn't feel I was there yet. So, so yeah. So the original launch, uh, I had the big beta group. I had reached out to lots of people ahead of time. I did all the things that all the blogs say. Emailed Apple. Uh, or not emailed, sent it to their, they have like a form you can fill out to say you have a app coming out, sent a lot of press emails to people who I didn't expect and most didn't respond. And I did uh, a lot of like hyping on Twitter, basically. You know, I had a countdown <laughs> that I tweeted about constantly, like we're getting closer, we're getting closer. And there was definitely a feeling of a lot of people are on this journey with me, especially the people who in the, you know, when WWDC happened and I was, like kind of emerging into the community a little bit. Um, those people were with me the whole time, basically my entire experience. And so it felt like it was a community event in my little bubble. And I tried to keep that going. So like everything I tried, I would tweet about what I'm trying. Uh, I did the pre-order thing where you set like you, people can pre-order it a week ahead of time. And then right. you set a specific date and it's just a date. It's not a time. And so I didn't know when it was going to actually go live. Um, turns out it goes live at the time uh, that somebody's local time says it's that date. So people in New mm-hmm. Zealand started saying it was available. And so throughout like the night and into the morning, different people were like, Hey, I have it now. And of course I'd retweet those. And we were kind of like, that's cool watching it move across the world. Um, so I was really trying to just make as much noise as humanly possible. Um, and right. that initial launch went exceptionally well. Like I couldn't, I was incredibly surprised by how many people found out about it, jumped on it. Um, Mac stories wrote an article on it, which to this day is still one of the like premium moments of my indie career. Uh, those guys are fine. I mean, whatever (laughs) they're, yeah, they're okay. You know, uh, it like it was Ryan when he was still there. Uh, Chris Stuffel. Mm hmm. Okay. I'm glad I said that right. And I, it was like incredible. It was this long article. It wasn't just like a, Hey, here's a new app and here's the four bullet points they said in their press release. It was like a genuine review with feedback and critique and highlighting some of the little details that I had in there. That, that moment was, was pretty incredible. I was rereading that article, uh, actually last night in preparation for this. And, uh, one of the things he mentions is, uh, the inability to 
make custom mixes, which I know you have now and I want to get to because it's it's one of my favorite features. But uh, it is interesting to look back at this, at these screenshots. It wasn't that long ago, but how much I think you got right the first time. And like, it's interesting. He calls out all like the animation and little visual flourishes that, you know, have been so important to you over your career. I think it's neat that they've surfaced here too. And an app that you basically just listen to. Yeah. Right. Like, (laughs) I think that, I think the reason that it was, it was not a sort of disrupted category is unlike a lot of other apps, it's kind of like most people, they get a new phone, you know, they switch to iPhone or they get their first phone or whatever. And they're like, I need to listen to a fan when I sleep. So you find an app that does that. You find the sound that you listen to. And then you just don't care what it looks like. You open it up and you know where that play button is. And you kind of like learn to ignore everything else about the app. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny how like (laughs) a lot of the visual flourishes that I added in, they don't necessarily matter. But I do think that the design, like I could pull up the dock literally right now, but I had three like driving principles uh, when I first started designing the app. And it was, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like it was basically uh, really fast to open, like make it so you can play a sound as fast as humanly possible. Uh, Make it so that you can use it in the dark without your glasses on. That was like a specific thing with the design. Like the original design actually was a giant play button in the middle, uh, which looked really goofy. But the idea to me was you know, a lot of times I forget to start it at night and you go to bed and you're like, I can't fall asleep. And you're like, Oh, it's cause I forgot to turn on that noise and like everything doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of fumbling around your phone in the dark and you're trying to find that little button. And so I wanted to make it like when you open the app, there's just a big play button. It's high contrast compared to everything else. That's why the name dark noise, that's where the name came from. Okay. Um, I had a big list of names, but I was trying to like, think like use it in the dark. Like a lot of these apps, especially ones with ads, we'll have a big blaring bright banner in the middle. And that would always drive me crazy. Right. <laughs> Blind somebody is there fumbling around it at yeah. midnight. <laughs> and so I did try to design the whole ethos of the app. The reason why when you open it, it's just the now playing screen, not all the list of noises is because 95% of the time, probably people just want to play the last thing that they played and then close it. Yeah. They never want to open it at all. Like David Sparks, uh, I've been on Mac Power Users with you before with him. And he talks about how like he doesn't even remember what the app looks like, especially on the Mac, because he just uses shortcuts for everything. And it's mm-hmm. like, yes, that is one of the big features to me is like I I knew yeah. that that's how people cared about it. And I tried to design it in that way. Um, but I couldn't help myself with, you know, the animations <laughs> as well. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I get it. You mentioned the the Mac version. I want to talk about that a little bit because uh, it started as an iPhone and iPad app, and I would I think that was the right move, right? The I think the, the most obvious use case is you got your phone on your nightstand and you're just playing it through the <laughs> the phone speaker when your phone yep. charges, or maybe you you know go to sleep with an AirPod or something. But what led you to bring it to the Mac and? And what technologies let you do that? How, how did all that go? So, yeah, the original idea was this is for people going to sleep. Like that was kind of my my thought process. And so like even the sounds and how I like design the sounds uh, were very focused on the iPhone speakers. Um, something I learned, I added iPad support because you can and it's not that big of a deal mm-hmm. if you build it 
you know, so that it lays out at different sizes. Um, and that was mostly the reason I had iPad support. But even during the beta period, I started hearing from a lot of people, especially on the iPad, that were using it while they worked. And that was a whole concept and use case that I hadn't really necessarily thought about originally. Um, and so I tried to lean into that with, you know, a lot of the like shortcut support and stuff was kind of in their mindset. But something that happened in 2020, which you may have heard about was there was a global pandemic and lots of people started working from home. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people are now working in a home office, sometimes with kids in the background, sometimes with a partner or something in the same room as them because they didn't structure their house for everybody working at home. Right. And also, if you remember, like Apple was just like tripping over themselves making money on Macs because everybody was getting new yeah. laptop computers for working from home uh, that they didn't have before. And I felt that too. My, I had the idea of having a Mac app. I always thought it would be really cool to have a Mac app, but it was l farther down my priority list. And when people started working from home, my requests, like I, I've always gotten, you know, a semi-decent amount of requests for people that want an Apple Watch app. And if you've listened to mm -hmm. any podcast by Marco Arment, you're also probably a little scared of adding an Apple Watch app because especially <laughs> audio related, um, yeah. especially one with audio <laughs> files and, you know, dealing with all that. So, but I've always gotten a decent amount of requests for that. But when the pandemic happened, the flip or the script totally flipped and I just got inundated with people that wanted a Mac app. Um, and so every once in a while one for the watch, but the Mac was like, it totally took over people's other platform that they wanted. And so I was excited about that idea. I was also, I was also at home uh, with my kids and struggling to do some of the other kind of bigger, harder problems that I was trying to solve with the app. And the idea of trying to build a Mac app was exciting, doing something very UI focused. And so I was like, you know what? This is the time I'm going to go ahead and do it. And it was ridiculously fun. Um, I used Mac Catalyst, which like I know people have lots of feelings on. I have pretty strong feelings of a lot of the apps that I now use are Mac Catalyst apps that probably wouldn't have even existed yeah. on the Mac if it wasn't for yeah. that. So I'm a huge fan of it personally. And even Apple's moving to it, right? Over the years, they had sort of the original four, but messages and maps like everyone has messages running on their computer 24 seven. Yeah. And it's catalyst and you would never know unless you listen to nerdy shows. Right. Uh, messages is the perfect example to me where it's like, yeah, there are things that it's missing, but like, do you, does anybody remember the app kit version of messages? It was not <laughs> like it was missing a lot more. Yeah. Cause it was, it was like the old iChat mm -hmm. client and then in like lion or mountain lion, whatever they, shoehorned iMessage into it. Remember for a while you could have both, like you'd have messages and you'd have your AOL stuff in the same, like oh, I it was all kind of that. in the same, in the same mix or maybe they were separate. Maybe you had iChat and messages. Could I always use, was forget, it Adium? Uh, that was what yeah. I always used for that oh, stuff. Oh man, now I'm, now yeah, I'm now you're sad about Adium. <laughs> <laughs> Little duck, oh, sat on my dock for years. <laughs> that was an adorable duck. Um, yeah, talk about good app icons. But, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, so I used Catalyst and what was really, really cool about that was I really could check a box and it mostly worked. Like that was like a legit story, you know, cause I had, um, iPad support and the way I had built my iPad support, I know a lot of people talk about the different size classes and how, you know, the problems that causes or whatever. But for me, at least I, I wrote all of my stuff to be pretty adaptive 
uh, it's not like mm-hmm. if it's this size class, I do this. If it's this size class, I do this. I kind of said like, if the window is less than this width, do this thing to the layout. And if it's greater than that width, do this with the layout and all the different size classes are kind of like noise to me. Um, so when it came to catalyst, it's like, well, that's really easy because you can, there's an infinite amount of widths that it could be. And my app just adapts to all those. And of course it looks kind of silly when it's, when it's really big, but something that I, I feel like a lot of people, when they talk about the Mac, the way people discuss these platforms is interesting. Cause it's like, you know, you have your iPhone, which is, you know, you have your fat fingers, so you can't have super high density. And also you have a really small screen. So you have to like build your layouts to be sort of specific focus around certain use cases or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have the iPad where you get a little bit more screen real estate and you can have kind of maybe two things that are next to each other and, and like a little bit more information density, but not really because you're still using your fingers. And then everybody talks about the Mac and they say, now you have a really big canvas and you need to fill up that canvas with lots of content and high information density stuff. And that's true for like logic or final cut. Right. But when I think of a lot of the Mac apps that I really like, it's things like uh, audio hijack. I'm staring at it right now. Mm-hmm. Audio hijack is not an app that looks good full screen on my Mac. What makes it great is I can make it really tiny and half most of it right now is covered up by another window. But the part that shows my waveforms that confirms that I'm getting audio from me and audio from you, that's visible. And that's all I really care about at this point. Yeah. And so like, I almost think that the the real superpower or one of the real superpowers of the Mac as a platform is the ability for things to go small, not just the ability for things to go big because you can't do that on the iPad, even, even with stage manager. Uh, and we won't get into that whole digression, but <laughs> you're only allowed to, to shrink it to a certain size. Like that was the first question I asked an Apple engineer, uh, when I was in the spaceship last year after they announced it, and I was like, how small can we make it? Because what I did with the Mac version of dark noise is, you know, I checked the box. I basically got the app working for free more or less with some minor changes. And then I focused almost all my time and attention on the toolbar itself. So I kind of took mm-hmm. Apple music style or Apple podcast, whatever style toolbar that sits at the top with the play pause next, you know, volume. Um, I rebuilt that myself because it wasn't necessarily <laughs> easy to do, which it would have been nice if it was. And then I thought what I immediately thought of is I wish I could make this like QuickTime. Because QuickTime, when you're playing audio, is incredibly tight. It's the smallest window you can imagine. Like it's, you know, mm-hmm. 20 pixels tall and 100 pixels wide or something like that. And I was like, well, I could just do that, I think. And instead of making it a button that you toggle or a mode that you switch to, like uh, not iTunes, Apple Music does, which I think is kind of confusing and it's hard to get out of. I just kind of took the concepts of the web and brought it into a Mac app. And it's like... If you make the screen small enough, all that's left is the toolbar. And so I let you uh, shrink the window super, super narrow, and then you can make it really, really short. And it's just this little squat player. And that's all that you see because that's all you really need. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can also make it really wide and it gets even shorter height wise. Um, And again, the idea is like, I kind of think the superpower of the Mac in a lot of ways for an audio app, especially is I don't care about most of the UI. Most of the time, most of the time I just want it to play the thing. Right. And then I need to be able to pause it when I need to pause it. Like those are the, the two things that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of really how I focused on 
on the the Mac UI. And it seems like that was received pretty well. Yeah, I, I love it. I love that it shrinks down. It reminds me of the old uh, like iTunes mini player. You just like keep it up in your corner. Yeah. Little brush metal box that tells you what you're listening to. And, you know, um, did the did the Mac version spur any business model changes? How, how did you work that in with already having the iPhone and iPad version out there? Um, so I made it a universal app, which also was really nice, honestly, because it's less things for me to have to manage again as like kind of a side app. Uh, but it also meant... You know, there had been a couple features like Mix Audio uh, had come before that, that I've been able to kind of raise the price as I added more features. But the Mac app was the one where now it's a universal app. You get the iPhone, iPad and Mac. And I reached that mythical $9.99 price point where I felt like it was truly worth that amount. Um, and so that was really exciting. But it, I didn't change the model. It was still paid up front at that time. So around, I think it was iOS 15, uh, Apple started to include uh, background noises in their OSs. And so I'm sure everyone listening to the show is familiar with the term Sherlock. It's basically when Apple takes your app and turns it into a feature of, of one of their platforms. Uh, how did you respond to that? How did that feel You know, when that news broke? And has it made an impact on, on the business sense? So it's kind of weird. It's always weird talking about this stuff because like indie app developers span a spectrum of like, it's a thing you have in your spare time that makes no money or whatever, all the way to, you know, you have a business with employees. Um, and I'm closer on the, like, it's a thing I do in my spare time. It makes some money. I, I treat it like a business, but I don't mm -hmm. have employees. I don't feed my family with the money coming from this. And so because of that, the, the initial feeling I had, well, at first it was like, okay, it's an accessibility feature. Does this really matter? And then I saw the list of noises that they had. And one of the noises was called dark noise, which is not a term right. that other people have used really at all. And so that was that was like, a, oh my gosh, like, am I going to run into like legal problems? Are they going to make me change my name? Stuff like that. But the, the main feeling wasn't fear. Uh, it was mostly like, <laughs> it felt like validation. Like I felt like I... Uh, yeah. I'm joining the crowd of, of indie developers who can say they've been Sherlocked. I feel like this, <laughs> like I've never had like a proper clone app in the Android Play Store. And whenever one of my friends finds one of those and they kind of complain about it, I'm, I'm actually a little bit jealous because I'm like, ah, I don't feel quite like a full real developer yet. Um, but each one of these things almost <laughs> feels like a notch in the like uh, collective experience of being, you know, an indie app developer. Sure. Um, and so that was actually my first feeling to, to show, you know, the level of true business acumen that I bring to this, to this project. <laughs> well, I think in a way, Sherlocking matters less than it used to because Apple has a tendency in their system features not to go as deep as a third party might. So, so I think the, canonical example that I think a lot of people will be familiar with is Instapaper versus Safari reading list. To this day, Safari reading list isn't as good as a dedicated read it later app. And I think what a lot of developers find is, yeah, some people who are just at the surface level of my app or the type of people who really don't want to pay me for my work, they may move over, but that's fine. And the people who are really into it, who really rely on whatever your app does, that yeah, Apple's is fine. They may look at it, but they're going to realize that, okay, I'm actually a power user kind of in this yeah. specific thing. And and I get it, right? Apple has to go 
broad with their features. We talk a lot about this on MPU about if you're writing reminders at Apple, you're writing a reminders app that hundreds of millions of people are going to use. Right. In thousands of languages. Uh, yeah. Or hundreds of languages. Right. Like all over the world. If you're writing a bespoke, super polished task manager as a third party, you can get really specific about some of the ways you want things done because the people who want that are going to find it. Right. So right. I think people sort of have a, an immediate worry and I think it's right to, right. I'm not, you know, if you, get, <laughs> if you're listening out there and you get Sherlocked at WBDC, like, yeah, you should be, you should take your time and understand what Apple's doing. But I think most people have found in the modern era, it doesn't really hurt them. I think it, I think it really is super dependent on, on your business. Like I think of uh, Astropad or actually, no, a more recent example is Camo. Yeah. So Camo is the app that uh, you can use your phone as your webcam mm -hmm. because your iPhone is, you know, amazing camera, yada, yada, yada. And it was like super popular, especially when the pandemic happened. Timing was really fortuitous there. Um, and then the next year, Apple came out with, what do they call it? Something handoff or... Continuity camera? Continuity camera. Continuity camera, yeah. And that was basically the the main value prop of camo, but done by Apple. And importantly, done by Apple in a way that camo literally couldn't replicate, right? Because right. they have the system hooks and they're allowed to do things that camo wasn't allowed to do. And uh, Aiden and that team, like, that was an existential moment, a true existential moment. That wasn't a, like... Apple validated the ca the category and people that are looking for more power features are going to end up on camo. It was like, you have to like, you have to, if you're faced with that situation and your main value proposition is completely undercut as a totally free feature. I think there's an enormous amount of work you kind of have to do to like really rethink your product and retarget it. And they've done an amazing job at doing that. And like they're up for an Apple design award this year, you know, very, ex I think that's like a really exciting story and an example of that, but they like integrated continuity camera into their app and did a whole bunch of extra new stuff on top of it. But it was existential. I think if they hadn't changed gears, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's fair. That's fair. In my case, you know, this was a, accessibility feature buried pretty deep. There was only six sounds. It doesn't seem like that was existential. Now, yeah. by the time this episode comes out, uh, there are rumors that there's going to be some kind of meditation app uh, that might be an actual dedicated app bringing some of the stuff into iOS. And that could be much more existential for me, especially because my app isn't a kind of crummy looking app with 30 billion sounds. It's a like polished, what would Apple do if they made a white noise app type app? Mm -hmm. But if that's your main focus, then if, if Apple does make a white noise app, you might be in more existential trouble. And so if, you know, if at WWDC, they announce an app that more or less covers my main value prop, which is like deep system integrations, shortcut support, and it's kind of nice and not kind of crummy feeling. I'm going to have to come up with some features and really think about what are the things that can differentiate me from that and make it worth paying for. Yeah, I guess it really comes down to like a, at what level is Apple operating, right? Like uh, there's also a rumor about a journaling app. Like if I were day one, I'd probably be yeah. worried about that. But if it's a feature in another app, you know, you're, you're probably going to be probably going to be all right. 
This episode of Launched is brought to you by Kaleidoscope 4. After months of hard work, the Kaleidoscope team is proud to release the latest version of the world's best comparison and merge tool for the Mac. The new version keeps Kaleidoscope as intuitive as possible while adding major new capabilities and modernizing many aspects of the app. Here are some of the things you'll find in Kaleidoscope 4. Syntax coloring for all common markup and programming languages with three themes to choose from. It might seem like a subtle change, but once you see it, there's no going back. A new command to create a merge from any text comparison. This is a game changer that enables free editing of any comparison by moving the edited content into a separate destination that can be saved. There's also powerful new text filters that can clean up your comparison and hide differences that are not relevant to the task, like timestamps or object addresses. Go ahead and download the app and give Kaleidoscope 4 a thorough evaluation. There's a fresh 14-day trial period for everyone. Subscriptions start at $8 a month on a yearly plan. If you bought a license to Kaleidoscope 3, you'll get a special discount on the first year. Go to kaleidoscope.app to download now and use the coupon code LAUNCHED to get a 10% discount for the first year. That's L-A-U-N-C-H-E-D to get a 10% discount for the first year. Big thanks to Kaleidoscope for sponsoring this episode of Launched. That kind of brings us up, I think, to uh, to the present. So you've just launched a new version of Dark Noise. You changed it from a one-time purchase into a subscription. I know that's a move that a lot of developers have made or are thinking about making, and it can come with a lot of trepidation, right? How my customer is going to respond? How do I price it? Can I deliver what I'm promising? What were some of the things that went into that decision to, to change the business model moving forward? The biggest, I mean, being completely frank, the biggest reason for it was I wanted to make more money. Like if mm-hmm. you strip away all of the like flowery excuses and stuff that I'm about to give, that's really what the real answer is. <laughs> uh, now to go back to the flowery excuses that I'll give, our industry has had a lot of, uh, a lot of, changes layoffs uh you know different things happening yeah and the company that i was at was very much in the midst of that um and so i could see that coming and i was trying to prepare myself for what if i get laid off what do i need to do this is when i added sponsorships into this podcast Mm -hmm. um i did a couple other things and then one of those other things was like what can i do to make dark noise sustain me so i could like really give it more of my time and attention, um, especially if I really need to come to that. And so switching to subscriptions, it's been like laid out a million times, but it's like, it gives you a recurring revenue stream, especially if the app's been around for a while, which mine has your, your new users, like the amount of just users that kind of are potential users for you is a lot smaller because you've captured a lot of them. They bought it at some point in the past and you're starting to like mostly rely on new users coming into the platform, which is a smaller amount of people. Right. Right. Yeah. We've all seen that chart, right? At launch, it's a big peak and then you have the long tail. And if that long tail isn't at a sustainable level, it's hard to, it's hard to make it reliable. Right. If, right. if you've got to turn to it to support your family. So yeah, there's, I mean that ultimately it was like, how can I make this? I'm going to use the word more sustainable, which I know if you're a person who hates subscriptions, that term is probably feels like a toxic term, but th- it is what it is, right? It's, yeah. it's making the app make you more money in a more consistent way is the idea. Also part of this too was I didn't have, I didn't have a free trial cause it was paid up front. Um, and I didn't mention this whenever I went with the paid up front thing. 
part of it was what I said, which is like, I didn't want the sort of pressure on myself of continuing to do updates in case the whole thing fizzled out. But the other part of it is <laughs> paid up front is really simple and subscriptions yeah. are very not simple. Sure. And so I've been updating the app regularly and keeping up with Apple features for the last three years, however long it's been. So I feel pretty consistent or pretty confident that I am going to continue providing value there. Um, I also am more confident as a developer. So those two things, I was like, I think this is a thing that I can really do now um, in terms of turning that on. I also used maybe sponsor of the show. Now my employer, also previous guest on the show, CEO, uh, revenue cat. <laughs> There's a lot of caveats there. Uh, I use that for integrating it, which made everything a lot simpler. And yeah, like that was the ultimate real reason why, why I did that. It also enables me to build out a thing that I've been slowly trying to build out for a while, um, which is a backend that will service the ability to download additional sounds, which means that my library can get a lot bigger because right now everything's baked into the app, which is like a feature. Lots of people, I still regularly get emails asking, do I need to have an internet connection to use this app? And the answer is very strongly no, but it limits the amount of sounds that I can have. And so if I can build a, a backend service, that's going to cost me regular money and is a lot scarier if you're paid up front. Um, but once you have a subscription that can kind of support that, uh, that back end. And there's other features I can add, you know, if I have to add AI somehow because <laughs> I'm looking for investors or something uh, and you need that in your bullet point, that has a recurring cost, right? Those types of features are things that I just immediately don't do because I was paid up front. And now those are kind of unlocked as a, as a potential option now. How, how much work was it to decide where the breakpoint was going to be. So I believe the free version you download is eight sounds for free. You get the whole library plus custom mixes and some other things behind the subscription. Uh, what was it like trying to figure out where that gate should be? And are you happy with where it landed? Yeah, I spent quite a long time, you know, looking at lots of other apps, both in the ambient noise category and out. Um, and just way too much time writing out my feelings uh, <laughs> on that. And yeah, it's like, it's a really tricky thing because especially as like an indie who, you know, has their identity wrapped up in this a little bit, you want the free version to be nice. Like you don't want it to be, you want it to be something that you're proud of and is really useful for people. Mm -hmm. um, but also it can't be all the value prop wrapped up in that because then literally nobody will pay you except for the people who are trying to be nice to you, which is not a business. Right. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> and so what I eventually landed on was I want dark noise to be the, somebody says I need the ability to play some sort of ambient sound, especially like white noise or whatever. It should be like, download that app. There's literally no question. It's the best, cleanest, easiest one. Just download that and that'll do your job because if that's all that they need, there's a million free apps that'll do that. So I don't think, you know, um, I'm devaluing the app by providing that experience in the best possible way uh, as I can. And so what that means is like timers, you, you have all of the like all the audio playing stuff that I do to make sure it works with AirPlay and deals with your headphones and all that stuff. All of the... Uh, shortcuts, widgets. I wanted like all the system hooks and everything to be there. If you're just playing white noise and eventually I added uh, some more like rain or beach or whatever, I want it to be like 
very obvious that this is like the best system platform or was it platform citizen that mm-hmm. you can find in this category and it's the obvious choice there and then what i know from the amount of support requests i get is people are very particular about the sounds that they want um, and that is the kind of ladder up to hey if you want more that's where you'll you'll pay and so that's where mixing sounds together for you know, really dialing in a sound that you specifically want and then adding in the the bigger, longer library of different sounds. Um, that's where that comes into play, which I think works well with what Apple might do too. They'll probably have a smaller selection of sounds. And so if my free option is sort of matching their free option, then, you know, it's a little bit more competitive there, but then there's kind of that ladder up to the, the thing that you want to pay for, which is like, I want to dial in a specific sound. How has it been received? I mean, how did the launch go? And uh, I know personally, I moved right over. I was excited to do it. I use the app every day. Uh, did you get the sort of regular amount of pushback you expected? Like, just how did it go? And how, how did it feel when you hit that button, right? It's a big change. The biggest change you've made to the business model in the app probably since the 1.0. Like, you've done all this work. When it comes to the day, how'd it go? So, this is going to sound like an ad for my new company, but I promise you... This was my feelings. <laughs> I wasn't even interviewing with them whenever I did all this. Subscriptions, or Apple's in-app purchase system is insane and incredibly buggy. This is especially true if you have a Catalyst app. And I was, I was converting from a paid upfront app with a pretty large user base to having a subscription option, which meant I needed to grandfather those users you know, over, I didn't like, I, I'm essentially giving all of them all the same features that pro gets Yeah, at least for now, for sure. And I say, at least for now, meaning there might be features in the future that do require a subscription because they cost me a bunch of money, but I'm not going to take any features away from a person who's paid for it in the past. And I was using revenue cat. So most like the getting everything set up initially was really easy on that end. But whenever I, I got it through app review, which I started getting rejections because app reviews a lot harder if you have in-app purchases. So that was a, that was a little painful, but I expected that. And then there's kind of this trick you can do where you can test an app in the app store before it's technically released. Mm-hmm. Cause you can create a promo code for something that's been accepted and then send it to somebody and then they can download that new version that technically isn't released to everybody else. And Somebody told me about that and I was like, oh, cool. I'll double check and make sure that my app works, you know, correctly before I actually <laughs> release with this big launch that right. I was going to have on, on a Monday or Tuesday. And turns out it didn't work, especially on Catalyst. And I spent a very, very long, painful week or two weeks trying to hunt down this, this problem. I thought it was actually a revenue cap bug, which I was very frustrated at them for. It turns out Apple's receipts that they send you again, especially on a catalyst, but sometimes on iOS, sometimes just tell you the wrong day that the person originally purchased the app. Fun. Which makes it very <laughs> difficult. Yeah. It makes it very difficult to grandfather people in when you don't actually have an ability to know correctly. Um, mm-hmm. And I found a bunch of, I have like, I don't know, five layers of fallbacks now. And the last layer is somebody angrily emails me and I just send them a promo code and say, you can have everything for free. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You hear that, everybody? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I shouldn't say that publicly. Ah, whatever. Yeah, so like 
by the time I got the reason I say all that is by the time I got to the launch itself, I was so worn down. Like normally I do these big video things for my launches. Mm-hmm. I had nothing left in the tank. I was just like, I knew there was going to be some subset of users that I wasn't going to correctly grandfather in. And so I was prepared for lots of angry people there. I was just mad at the situation and I was just ready to get that thing out there. Cause it, it was like a week or more from the time I was supposedly going to launch it, which was just, it just weighs on you. Um, so I was prepared for a lot of hate and anger because that's typically what happens with these kinds of things. And I really didn't get that much. Like the main source of the typical like subscriptions are evil comments were I think Mac rumors uh, posted about the update, which I was very excited about. And a bunch of people, you know, said like the angry mean things there. Um, some of them were actually kind of funny, but for the most part, other than that and the occasional tweet, it was it was really supportive, mostly. Um, I tried to angle all of my press material around like Dark Noise is adding a free tier. Like that's that's the... Because it's not a value to users that they can now pay a subscription. Right. But the main value, aside from I had... I did have some updates and some sounds and stuff that were like remastered. But the main value is... Uh, a lot of people want to try the app. I get requests for a trial all the time. And now there's a free tier. There's also now a free trial for the pro version, which means you can listen to every single sound during that trial, which a lot of people would ask for samples of all the sounds too. Um, so that was kind of the main value proposition. And that that's kind of how it was received for the most part. There was people that were upset. I, Along with it switching business models, it also... Uh, the price also went up um, because one of the things subscriptions enable is the ability to have a higher price and people are more okay with that, Um, especially compared to paid up front because paid up front is, it's kind of a high risk transaction because the person has to give you money to even see what the thing does. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's a pain, you know, to get a refund. And so Taking that risk away meant, you know, I had risk priced into that paid up front price and now that risk is gone. And so my price can go up because the people at the point where they're going to buy it know exactly what they're getting. But even that was received pretty well. So I didn't really get that backlash that I was, I was pretty like girded up and prepared for. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I think the, the trial route is definitely helpful in an app like this, right? There, there are some types of apps that you can, you can totally get the gist of it in the free version, but I think letting people kind of see what's around the corner, right. If they, if they jump on board, I think that is a useful selling tool. And, uh, yeah, I think that, that honestly, I think it's a a pretty fair one, right. If you're going to ask somebody to pay monthly or pay for a year or whatever, I think showing them what they're going to get is respecting their purchasing power in a way, especially with these sound, like people are very particular about, the specific sounds like I got, I got an email in one of the early versions of the app uh, from a person who I respect and look up to that. I was, I was excited to get an email from them, but it it literally just said uh, there are frogs in the background of your thunderstorm sound. And that was it. And it was just like, Oh my gosh. And you know, I very quickly came up with a new, a new sound that didn't have that. Um, But it's like, these things are things that people put on a loop and listen to and a lot of times get Mm -hmm. kind of woven into their everyday life, especially when it's sleep or work related. And so people care a lot about very particularly how that thing sounds. And so letting people sample all of them 
I think that's that's really important for a lot of people. Well, you did mention your new position in Revenue Cats. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, if people haven't listened to your interview of the CEO, which was done live uh, in front of a stage, I remember you and I were talking before that. It's like doing a live podcast is a different thing. I think you did. I think you did great. Um, but what is your position over at Revenue Cat, and and uh, what? What excited you about joining that team? Because I know it's a company a lot of listeners will be familiar with, but getting to know them a bit better, like what 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 gets you excited about it? So the position is developer advocate, which is which is interesting for me. It's something kind of uh, not kind of very new. Um, I've been kind of a normal engineer in lots of different languages, but you know, pulling new tickets, writing code, shipping those that code uh, my whole career. And this is something pretty new for me. The company itself has been... I know a couple of people there and I've been watching them from afar for a long time. And now, you know, I'm a user of of their, their product with Dark Noise. They're just a really exciting company right now. The, them and Arc, if you're familiar with the Arc browser. Yeah. They're two companies that they're like... Their online brand, which I know sounds kind of cheesy, but like their personality really resonates with me in a way that I find very exciting. Um, and Revenue Cat in particular, they're a business model. It's one of those natural business models that makes you excited, especially as an, an indie where it's like they they make money whenever you make money. And if you don't make money, they make less money. And so they're highly incentivized to help you, you know, become better at running a mobile business. They're very mobile focused, which is something that I'm really passionate about. And like they run a podcast, which is something I I'm interested in called sub club uh, with Jacob, the CEO that I interviewed and David Bernard or Barnard. And I love that podcast too. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of similar to launch. In fact, we've had a lot of the same guests <laughs> and I really like listening to, I love listening to those episodes. Um, in particular because like we're pulling on very different threads like i'm on the more maybe developer side of things and sub club is mm-hmm. very focused on kind of the business uh, growth side of things and they're both things i'm personally really interested in and passionate about and so like i'm very familiar with the company and their ethos i like their the mission itself um and then this is going to sound weird, but the vibe, they have good vibes. Yeah, no, I get it. They're really passionate and exciting. And when I started my first day at revenue cat was, uh, was getting on a plane and flying out to Cape Cod for, uh, a company offsite, which they, they do every year because they're a distributed company all over the world. And so this is their opportunity to get everybody actually together, you know, shaking hands and seeing faces. Um, and the energy I got there, and the speed at which I saw them think of an idea and implement it and get it out to users and get feedback was like electrifying. Like it was just so exciting. So I I don't know that I've ever been a part of a team, especially company wide, with that type of energy. And so I'm absolutely thrilled to be to be a part of it. And the developer advocate piece itself is is focused on helping developers. Like that's literally my job is either helping them use our tools or getting feedback from other developers and bringing it to our teams. And so I obviously love doing that. That's that's part of what I love about this podcast itself. And I get to work in sort of a more media type field, which is the type of stuff I do in my free time all the time anyway. And so 
yeah, I think it, it all came together very, very quickly. And I think that's, that's sort of representative of how it's like a perfect match for me. I feel like, but we'll see. I'm only in like week three. <laughs> it's on the, honey, the honeymoon period for yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, you kind of get to sit in between, right? It's uh, you get to do a little bit of everything. It sounds like you're interested in, and those are the best kind of jobs, right? It's how I feel about my job, right? I get to be nerdy, but also write and make content, like all those things that I enjoy. I've kind of mushed together to a weird career. Um, for for those developers out there who you know they're looking at at making this transition with their product, right? Maybe maybe they were free, maybe they had upfront pricing, or maybe they have a subscription now and they're looking just like to, to overhaul it. Uh, what are a couple of things you would have them be thinking about in those decisions? Hmm. I think you're meaning switching from like paid up front or something to a subscription. Yeah, or even, or even maybe they've got a subscription now and it's not, really working and they're thinking Mm. about overhauling it somehow. So I think one, like looking at the landscape is obviously helpful. It's not that it's not that, you know, you should do the same thing everybody else is doing, but you should know what everybody else is doing just to know what the different options are. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of, I think it's really important to understand what kind of business you're trying to run, Mm -hmm. because if you're following if you're following people like me, frankly, and then you're following somebody like, like Aiden at camo, we're running very different businesses. Right. And so the things that work well for me are not the same, same things that are going to work well for a company that's employing 10 people and is needs a growth strategy in order for their company to keep working. Like it's just very different things. And so really like looking inwardly and thinking, what, what are my goals? Um, what do I want this thing to be? I think that's important and it's important to filter, uh, influencer like advice through that lens at all times, because everybody's situation is very different and you, you can't, you know, just because something worked for one person doesn't mean it, it maps to your situation very well. Other than that, I think thinking long-term is obviously really important. I'm, I've, I don't know how many people I've had on this show that have made a decision out of fear. They're trying to make sure that they're treating their users the right way. It was a good decision at the time, but it wasn't projecting out long-term thinking through the impacts of that. And then they ended up having to make a decision which felt much worse later or shut their app down. Right. And this is like Hmm. doing a paid up front weather app or something like that, where it sounds good. You hate subscriptions. We get it. But then like you can't run a business that way. And so trying to think long-term, Think right by your users in a long-term way, not just in the short term, because you're trying to avoid Twitter hate. Um, I think that's an important thing too. But at the same time, don't ignore the users' feelings. The users. I feel like I'm talking like Tron now. Uh, but like, <laughs> I think a lot of the extreme pushback we've seen with apps, I think sometimes that comes from a mindset of the developer going, you can't listen to the haters and what that translates to is everybody who says something mean is a hater. And then you start ignoring that negative feedback and that negative feedback, while the words they're saying don't map directly to reality in terms of how you should run your app, they do represent real feelings that real people feel right. Um, so you can't ignore that either. And so trying to position your copy and marketing material and email responses and support responses 
through that lens of empathy for like how they're gonna you know receive this information i think that's really important too yeah yeah i totally agree i think that's definitely the right way to go and i think it's really applicable to any business right we're we're talking about a kind of a a narrow slice of the the world but i think that's crucial kind of no matter where you are well i think we can wrap it up there thank you for joining me on your podcast man my brain just like melted for a second thank you for joining (laughs) yes uh you're welcome uh (laughs) Thank you for hosting. This is uh, this is really cool. Usually, uh, I I mark these episodes as a success or failure. There's a couple different you know internal metrics, but one of them is when I'm editing, I look at how long the waveforms are for me talking versus the other person talking. Mm-hmm. And if me talking is more than the other person, I've failed that episode. Um, but in this episode, <laughs> I did not stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's uh, that's sort of on purpose. I don't know. Uh, it felt weird, yeah. but uh, it, was, it was nice to just get to ramble, I guess. Yeah, no, it's good to hear it. You know, as, as uh, a user of Dark Noise for a long time, it's always, or of any app, it's good to know the background. And I love the interviews you do here, right? Even apps I've never heard of or developers I don't know. Like, I listen to all of them because everyone's story in this space is interesting. And um, so, yeah, thanks for letting me join you on your podcast that I hosted. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. We have to stop this. We're going in circles now. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Huge thanks to Steven for hosting this special episode of Launched. Starting today, I'm taking my annual summer break to hang out with my family and get Dark Noise ready for the latest iOS and macOS updates this fall. For show notes and more, check out launchedfm.com. I hope you all have a wonderful summer, and I'll see you in the fall. Thank you.